Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? Uh, you think you'd be a little bit more excited after Alabama won yesterday, but I guess you're all Auburn fans. Um, a lot of good stuff going on. Uh, one, you know, we have some great staff here. Pastor Anthony is just a gift to this church. Last week he had community group launch. We also all have uh, chapel socials, which is the one-time type event-based, fellowship-type-based group that's out there in the lobby as well. And then he had essentials yesterday, and he just loves people, pastors people so well. Would y'all just honor him and give him a big round of applause real quick? You, you truly are a gift to this church, you and Lisa both, um, and your boys. Um, a lot of good stuff going on. You heard in that announcement video, worship night is next Sunday night. So that, that's a big deal. So what is going on is um, we're bringing in some, some amazing creative and worship voices that are in America to chapel next Saturday to train not only our worship team, but other worship teams in the area. Uh, Rachel and Caleb Culver, part of Radiant City Worship in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Lenny LeBlanc from right here in Florence, Alabama, but also Rita Springer. So Sunday night's gonna be an amazing worship night. If you don't know who Rita Springer is, you are missing out. She is literally one of the godmothers or spiritual mothers of the whole worship movement in America. And so please make it a priority to be here. Um, and then last but not least, this week, one of the generals of the faith in the worldwide church, Dr. Cho, uh, went to be with Jesus. So you don't know Dr. Cho, he pastors the largest church in the world in Seoul, South Korea. He's literally taught the church how to pray, he's taught the church faith, he's taught the church how to pastor people through small groups. He literally invented the small group model, he literally reinstated the prayer meeting model into the church and shared that with the entire world. And he has been a huge influence to me just through books uh, that I've read of his and people that I know who have spent a great amount of time with him. And so if you have a chance, pray just for this church in South Korea, for his family, but also go buy some of his books. If you have not read The Fourth Dimension of Prayer, make it a priority on your book reading list. It is a great, 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 great book. If you have Bibles, you can turn to Psalm chapter 19. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 19 as we continue our series on I Want to Believe in God, But. Last week we talked about suffering and how many people have that as an obstacle to their faith? Uh, today we're going to talk about science and faith. And so my background, growing up, I, my mom's dad uh, was a professor at a, at a community college over science and astronomy and chemistry. And so I just remember as a, as a young kid doing science experiments in his garage, like I specifically remember he had a little photo cell, like a mini solar panel back in the 80s that we'd hook up to a switch and hook that up to a light bulb. And just through sunlight, I could make light happen. And all these other, these chemistry experiments, all these things, he actually, when he retired, they named a building on that campus after him, the Watlington Science Field Station. I was showing RJ last night that had a seismograph inside of it, had some telescopes with it, astronomy at. And so I've just always been infatuated with science. I love knowledge. I love creativity. I love science and biology and chemistry, all those things. But something has happened in our world where we look at science and faith many times as enemies. Or we look at them as two totally separate entities that should never coincide with each other. And it kind of saddens me because most of the universities we see in the world were founded by Christians for the sole purpose of studying creation, studying the world to give God greater glory. But now we live in a day and age where people that are scientifically minded feel like they don't have a place in the church because the church, instead of embracing that which was part of us for so many thousands of years, has looked at science as the enemy because of Darwinism and evolution. And what's ironic is even Charles Darwin's second in command or second leading researcher was a staunch 
believer and follower of Jesus. And so out of the fear of the church, we push that away and we attack science instead of leveraging science as a way to study God's creation to a greater degree. And I don't believe there's a, there's a fight between science and faith. I believe there's a marriage between science and faith that helps us worship God even better. One person said this way. Actually, let me skip. In two weeks, we're going to do Q&A on this series. So if you have any questions about the Bible, theology, culture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you can text the word question to that number, and we're going to answer your questions live in that service. But it said this, faith and science go hand in hand, and studying God's creation is an act of worship. So many scientists, they said this way, uh, understanding more of science doesn't make God smaller. It actually allows us to see his creativity in more detail. So faith and science go hand in hand, and when I study God's creation, it actually helps me worship him because it's expanding my thoughts and my faith of who he is and what he can actually accomplish. We actually talk about this in the great commandment. Mark chapter 12, verse 30, literally says, love your Lord, God, with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. That is study, that is knowledge, that is information with your mind and your strength. As Pentecostals, we just want to stop at these two. Meaning, I want to worship God in worship. I want to worship him with my feelings, my emotions, and in prayer. But many times, don't want to clown on Pentecostals. We're great at worship. We are terrible at theology. We're terrible at Bible study. We're terrible. We love the heart stuff. We struggle with the mind stuff. And the strength is your actions or your behaviors. And I believe many scientists get this part of the great commandment correctly while we lose out on it. So I want to share with you just a few scientists that were staunch believers and followers of Jesus. And the goal for this is, one, to encourage you that you can both seek greater knowledge in science or the medical field, or biology, or chemistry, but also still serve God and worship God. Specifically, for those of you in the medical field and for young people who feel like you're called to serve God through growing in your knowledge of science, biology, chemistry, I believe God wants to use young people who have a great, amazing minds to be the inventors by God-given design of cures to cancer, disease, engineering, all these types of things. I think it's time to reemerge the two. And so you need to understand that for many years, the founders of science, founded science, they said off of the word of God. And my favorite is George Washington Carver. George Washington Carver was a young man who was literally a, a child of a slave who was a, the slave mom was adopted into a white family in Missouri because they couldn't have kids. They hated slavery, but they, they brought her in, adopted her as their own. He was almost dead. And as his mom passed away, he was left as a young boy. He literally would solve all the agricultural problems in their city, in their town, as a seven, eight-year-old boy. He said many of his inventions came from going in the woods, reading God's word, and praying to God, and he would give him the solutions that we're seeing functional today. George, I'm not going to say it in French, George Lamarck. He discovered the expansion of space and the father of the Big Bang Theory. He was the first one to use the term Big Bang Theory. He said as you study the universe, you study creation, the universe is actually expanding 
He was a Belgian priest of the Catholic Church, and so he used this term, the Big Bang Theory, and all the scientists of the day said, no, that's theology, that's not science. The world, at that time, science said the world, the universe was stable, it was static, it was not changing, it had just always been here. He came and said, no, God's word said there was a beginning point to the universe, and science actually says the exact same thing. Florence Nightingale who was a woman who broke through the strongholds of women in the workforce and became the founder of modern nursing where she used science and data to provide better health care to all those that she was serving. And we still use many of those things today. Roger Bacon and William Ockham were the ones who laid the foundation for the scientific method. So you can blame them for all your sixth grade physical science hatred. Like, they're the ones who founded and determined there's a way to prove scientific law, and they're the ones that found it. Both of them were priests. Charles Towns invented the laser and the maser. I don't even know what a maser is, but invented the laser and was writing books on religion and theology at the same time. He also is the one who established that the Milky Way was a supermassive black hole before anybody else thought of it. Francis Collins, who's one of my favorite scientists, wrote a book called The Language of God, which is a book on astrophysics, but also points to the creator through that, was an atheist, and as a professor, converted to Christianity because the data and the scientific research pointed to intelligent design in Jesus. They have Charles Babbage, who's the father of the modern-day computer, and he looks bored as all get out. <laughs> I think he literally said, I can't just sit around here and do nothing all day. I need an iPhone. How can I get an iPhone? He actually created the first programmable computer. So this is what I want you to see. That you can separate science and faith, and when you do so, you jeopardize the way you can worship God. Or you can combine the two together, and you'll increase the way you can worship God, but you'll actually have a foothold to change the world for the glory of God. So Psalms 19, verse 1 and 2. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The knowledge is the scientific part, the creative side of the universe. That God is saying, look at the skies, look at the universe, look at the stars. And you see that, you'll see knowledge of how I created the universe. But then you keep, skip down to verse 7. But the law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So David, the psalmist, goes from saying, look at the stars, look at the universe, but also look at his word. He's saying, don't just look at the universe and become a new age freak. Look at the universe, see God's glory, but then go back to his word to see who he truly is. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. I, I love this scripture. It's one of my favorite psalms in the entire Bible. Because you can see in the glory of God through the universe, but then the beauty of God's scripture through his word. And so this is what I want you to see. All of creation all of it. Everybody say all. all. All creation points to the power and presence of God. All of it. 
Not just what you do on Sunday morning, not just the church, the entire universe. One scripture says, if you don't praise him, the rocks will cry out. Meaning the rocks are still pointing to the power and presence of God. The stars point to the power and presence of God. The sky, the sunset, it all points to the power and presence of God. And it's a beautiful thing. And so all scientists do is they're looking at what God has created and learning more about what he designed because it points us to a greater glory of God. Because you and I both know, you can look at a sunset and see all the beautiful colors in the sky. You can look at a a clear night with a black sky with stars just shining and glimmering and glistening. You can look at the beach and the water crashing in upon the shore. You can go to the mountains and see the, the fog rolling. You can see the changes of the leaves in Gatlinburg or New Hampshire in the fall. And you have to sit there and say, somebody had to have created all of this. Or this is all by accident. Literally, this beauty, which beauty is not even something you can create, it's something innate in us, created in us. Like either it's all by accident or somebody created all of this. And see, as you get to study creation, it actually points you back to the creator. Because if you look at creation, this intelligent design that God has used to design the universe, like our universe is in perfect harmony. Like literally, there's 79% oxygen in our atmosphere, 20% nitrogen, and 1% variable gases. If that changes by 1% either way, you die. Gravity, if gravity changed one degree one way or another, everything falls apart and the universe becomes a black hole. Like when you look at the universe, everything, the water cycles, the seasons, everything has this cycle and this tension and this balance to it because God created everything in this perfect scenario for life. That's why evolution has not created life on any other planet but ours. Because God designed this planet to be his home for all of eternity once he sends Jesus back. It's perfectly formatted for him. Francis Collins what is Stephen Hawking? If you don't know who Stephen Hawking is, he's one of the most aggressive atheists out there. And Stephen Hawking even said this in his own book, The God Delusion. He said, the odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications. Now, this comes from an atheist. It would be very difficult to explain why the universe should have begun in just this way, except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. That is an atheist saying, the science, the data, it's all pointing to somebody designing all of this. And here's a couple reasons why. Some of these are physical laws, physical science 101, real quick. The law of biogenesis, which has the word genesis in it, states that life only comes from established life. Meaning, you can't create life without life. So the only way to create more life is to start with a life, a.k.a. Adam and Eve. The first law of thermodynamics, which you learned in physics or chemistry, is a law of conservation of mass. Matter can neither be created nor destroyed. The second law of thermodynamics means entropy, meaning if you start transferring that energy or matter, it begins to decrease in the quality, meaning it falls apart, it doesn't get better. And then irreducible complexity just means this, that some things are so complex that if you move one part out of the system, the whole system falls apart. Right, So you can say, well, I just don't know if I believe that. Well, if I go out to your car and I take the belt off your car, it's no longer going to run anymore. 
because it's irreducibly complex. In biology, we call that the eyeball. The eyeball is so complex that if you change one part of the eyeball, the eyeball no longer works or functions like an eyeball. Same thing with amino acids and proteins that are the basics of human life, that they're so complex in their simplicity that if you change them, life begins to no longer exist. And so what I think is happening is God is using science to actually confirm intelligent design. And I think we live in a day and age where knowledge is so easily, it's so easily accessible that you're getting younger and younger people who become smarter and smarter and smarter. Now, once I did, my kids are much smarter than me, but at the same time, they're much dumber than me at the same time. <laughs> they have access to all types of information. They just don't know how to use it. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, are we going to hold our kids back from pursuing studying the God of the universe by giving them the faith they need to function because they're going to college campuses where they have secular, humanist, atheistic professors who don't care about faith. They just want to shove the science and their secular religion down their throat. Or are we going to empower our kids to know God but also know his creation and change universities and change the world? Because science can do a lot of things, but it cannot teach us the morals and values that we have. And faith can teach us a lot of things, but it can't teach our kids how to fulfill their purpose in the world as scientists, doctors, nurses, biologists, chemists, nurses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because here's what we're learning. The whole universe is pointing to the creator. The designed universe is pointing to the designer. Like it's all pointing. It's our job as it points is to say, you see that star? My God created that star. I don't exactly know how all the things come to pass. I just know he said it and there it is. You see that sunset? My God created that sunset. And I believe God has called you to study meteorology and determine how God has set the planets in motion and the sun in motion and the moon in motion and the earth in rotation because when you encounter creation, it creates a sense of awe of who God is. Now, me and RJ have hunted for years. I am not a hunter. I did not grow up hunting. I grew up playing basketball, baseball, and football. I never shot a deer growing up. I never had camouflage growing up. Like, I was a hip-hop guy. I listened to Master P, Tupac, and Biggie. They don't have that in the woods. I ain't going to the woods. But then I have a son, and my parenting philosophy is this. Don't try to get your kids into what you like to do. You find out what they like to do, and you join them in that. So RJ wanted to be a hunter. I don't care to hunt. So he used to tell Toya, and she'd tell this joke, and it, I really didn't like this joke. She said, he'd say, well, yeah, I like to hunt, but my dad doesn't like to go hunting. He likes to hunt for shoes. I was like, dude, he's like four. I'm like, bro, don't say that to people in public. It's true, but don't say it. So I literally had to learn on YouTube videos how to hunt, how to field dress a deer, the whole nine yards. But I remember the first time we actually went, you get to the woods before the sun comes up, and you're in the tree stand, and the woods begin to wake up. The sun begins to creep over the horizon. You start hearing the squirrels wrestle and rustle around in the leaves. You start hearing the birds chirp, and the woods come alive, and it just awakens my soul to the glory of God. Like when the kids were younger, the house we lived in had a huge soccer field behind our house. We used to take a blanket and lay down and just look at the stars. 
And I would tell them, you see those stars? Those are the exact same stars that Abraham looked at when God told him, I'm going to multiply your children more than the stars you can count. Those are the same stars that when Abraham was walking with his son Isaac to the mountaintop, they would see as they were walking. Those are the same stars that Jesus and the disciples used to navigate the waters on the Sea of Galilee. You see those stars. And it would just bring awe to our minds. And so I remember one time I told them, one time we were laying there, no lie, we're laying there and we all five of us see a shooting star at the same time. And I thought, my God, like, I, I know he probably didn't do this just for me, but I'm having this moment with my kids and he just allows for all five of us to see the shooting star one time. So I told him, I said, why don't you all pick a star and name a star? Right, so the kids were four, six, and eight or something like that. And so one of the kids is like, that star's Princess Mulan. That star's such and such. And then one of the twins said, that star is Los Maracas. And I was like, that's Spanish. And then I realized Los Maracas was the Mexican restaurant we went to like twice a week. <laughs> so my kids had taco on the brain. And there's something in young children that creation awakens them. And what God wants, God wants a holy curiosity I think when he said, hey, don't, don't keep the kids from coming to me. Let them come. You need to have childlike faith. I think what he's saying is you need a holy curiosity in your spirit. Just like a kid who's curious about everything. We should be curious about everything God creates. I should be curious in worship. I should be curious when I see the sun. I should be curious when I see everything. There should be a holy curiosity that stirs our soul to a greater awe in God. One of my favorite songs of all time is Sean McDonald. And it says this. It says, look into the stars pondering how far away they are, how you hold them in your hands, and yet you still know this man. And you know my innermost being even better than I know, than I know myself. What a beautiful God, what a beautiful God. As I look off into the distance, watching the sun roll on by, beautiful colors all around me, painted all over the sky, the same hands that created all of this created you and I. What a beautiful God, what a beautiful God. Like there's something about creation that stirs the soul of a believer to wonder and let your mind be stretched and to love God, not just with all your heart, not just with all your soul, not just with all your strength, but with all your mind. Let your mind be wrecked by the magnitude and the power and the creativity of God. But that's not enough. Creation can point us towards God's glory, but only the Bible can point you towards God's salvation plan, his will, and his love. See, creation can point you to how big God is, but it can't point you to the gospel. See, creation can point you to how grandiose God is and how powerful he is, but it can't point you to the love of God. Only the word can do that. And so I think it's amazing in the scripture. David starts with Psalms 1 and 2, let the heavens declare your glory. Then he drops down, he says, well, the heavens declare your glory, but your word declares your character. And I don't want your glory, I want your character. I don't want your power, just your power. I want your love. I want all of you. And you only get that through his word because the Bible can explain life and death. It can explain love and relationships. It can explain morals and values. It can explain beauty, purpose, plan, wisdom. It can explain all these things that science can't. Science can't ever tell you how to have morals. Actually, science, we'll talk about this next week, science actually has reduced the amount of morals in our, 
in our universe. Like they actually used to use science as a way to justify racism and the Holocaust and all these. Once evolution came into play, people started using science to reduce morals, not increase them. But the Bible gives you morals that do not change. The Bible gives you love, gives you heart, gives you emotions that you can't get anywhere else. And so in this scripture, he uses kind of six little poetic stanzas. And each one of them, he gives a title to the word of God. Then he gives an attribute. Then he gives a result. He gives a title to the word, an attribute of the word, and the result. So the first one you'll see is the law. That's the title of the Lord is perfect. That's the attribute, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Meaning you can go to a doctor for the needs of your body. You can go to college for the needs of your mind, but you can only go to God and his word for the needs of your soul. Like you cannot go to chemistry class and find out how to revive your soul. You cannot go to medical school and find out how to revive your soul. There's some things that only the Bible can do. And right here, your soul is the center of your being. And it's only the word of God that can revive it back. And he says it's perfect. It is perfect. The way I look at that is this word is a perfect manual for how to revive my soul when it gets down. This this book is perfect when it talks about reviving my soul, bringing my soul back to life and building it back up, meaning there's principles in the Word of God that if you use them and you live by them will change the way your soul is revived. Some of you, your soul is decrepit because you don't live by the Word's manual, you live by the world's manual. So I don't know about you, but I believe there's two types of different people in the world. There's those that use the instructions to assemble something and those that look at the picture to assemble something. Like we're all, we can take a poll and we're all in one of two camps. Like it takes a long time to get up that manual and start looking through the stuff. But if you go by the picture, when you get to the end, sometimes it doesn't function like it's supposed to because you're looking at the picture. But if you go by the manual, it's step by step or line upon line, precept upon precept. It seems like it takes a little bit longer, but the end result is much better. That product actually functions the way it's supposed to function. Some of you go home, you put together your kid's toy, and it's lopsided because you were looking at the image. Some of you aren't living your life by the instruction manual. You don't want to take the line upon line, precept upon precept. That's not fast enough for you. So you look at the images of the world and you try to build your marriage or your life or your family off the images you see. And then years down the road, you look at your family, it's all jacked up and you're trying to blame the instruction manual. It's not God's fault. It's you were looking at the image of the Kardashians. Like, do you realize the world knows you're a visual people? So it uses images to deceive you into copying what you see instead of using the instruction manual to get your life set on the right path and built upon the things God wants you to build off of. But the second one is the testimony. That's the title of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. Meaning you don't have to be smart to be faithful. You don't have to be intelligent or educated to be faithful in the kingdom. The word of God has more than enough wisdom for you to use your entire lifetime. There's a man I know who built his entire business off the book of Proverbs. He is Dave Ramsey's mentor. 
He literally, there's a scripture in Proverbs, I think it's chapter 13, 14, where it says, don't trust the man who winks. This dude was at the table on a multi, multi million dollar business deal. At some point in the meeting, my buddy was with him. The guy winks at the guy, and the guy says, hey, we're done. I'm still really feeling this deal. And he gets up and leaves. So my buddy's like, bro, like, why are we leaving? He's like, it's a great deal. He said, no, he winked. He said, everybody winks. He's like, not in a business deal. And he pulled, why? He built his business on Proverbs. I'm telling you, if you seek after wisdom, in a whole book of Proverbs about wisdom, if you seek after wisdom, it will help you lead your family better, your life better, your job better, you'll become a better employer, a better employee, a better school teacher. You'll be better in every area. A proverb a day keeps the correctional officers away. <laughs> but we live in a whatever world right now where people are like, well, whatever. So our world has all types of knowledge but no wisdom. Some people use emotions and feelings as their way to navigate life, to, to make straight the path they're on. Some people use science and reasoning or logic. But the Bible gives you the straightest path to the best life possible God has for you. And the darker the world gets, the more wisdom we're going to need. Because the darker it gets, the harder it is to figure out what is right, what is wrong. But this word will always give you the right answer. The next one is the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The precepts are right, rejoicing the heart. For me, what that means is when your heart is heavy, the word can lift it up. Meaning in an age of fake news, good news makes me feel good. When I watch the news, which I don't do very often, it tells you, hey, we're all going to die. And it seems like it doesn't matter what it is, we're all going to die. If it's an earthquake, we're all going to die. Yeah, but the earthquake's in Haiti. Yeah, but it's going to cause this reaction here. Gas is going to be short. Oil is going to be short. This is going to happen. Da, da, da. We're all going to die. COVID-19, if you don't get vaccinated, if you don't wear a mask, if you don't stay in your house for 14 years straight, you're going to die. Okay, so I'm going to die from an earthquake or from COVID. Yeah, but if this person gets elected, we're all going to die. Like everything's, we're all going to die. Then I read the Bible, and it says we're all going to live. It literally tells me, hey, it doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. I've got a plan. My plan is unfolding, and I promise you eternal life. John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. So good news in the the mind of fake news is everything. And the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, meaning new cycles change Science actually changes and evolves, but the word of God endures forever. Here's what Matthew, or Jesus said in Matthew 24. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not Return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. You shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Listen, there's times that all you can do is stand on a word God has given you. There's times that all you can do is hold on to a Bible verse or a promise, and this is my promise, is I know that God's word endures forever. My emotions may come and go, my faith may come and go, but I know that God's word endures forever, and if I know that endures forever, I can stand on it forever. 
and the rules of the Lord. We hate the rules side. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. Now, rules, because everybody, I, I quoted Leonard Ravenhill this week. He said, in church world, anything we don't like about the Bible, we just call it legalistic. Which means, well, we don't like holiness, or we don't like this, because that excludes too many people. And, well, that's just legalistic. No, no, no. See, there's rules for everything. Depending on your political background, do you know there's actually a book called Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky, which is the rule book for communist rebels in America. So even the rebels have rules. Do you realize gangs, I preached in Soyaponga, El Salvador a couple years ago. It's the heaviest MS-13 neighborhood in the world. I'm preaching and I'm sweating through everything. I'm preaching my heart out. And afterwards the pastor says, yeah, like six months ago, like the MS-13 came and said we had to shut down the church or they're gonna kill us all. I said, well, bro, you may wanna tell me that before I preach. He said, no, it's cool. Like one of our, our people used to be in the gang and he knew some of the rules of the gang. So he went and talked to MS-13 and said, here are the rules to MS-13. You can't do this to a church. The most violent gang in the world has rules. Everybody has rules. Some rules are righteous altogether. Some rules are not righteous altogether. Only one set of rules will lead you to righteousness and salvation and blessing, but all the other rules will lead you to death and consequences. I'd rather have ones that lead to righteousness. Yeah, pastor, I get that, but you know, you preach about the Bible, and I'm a, I'm a Bible believer from beginning to end. Cover to cover, I believe in the Word of God. Yeah, Pastor, but the Bible is just such an old book. You know, it's been translated a couple times. Like, it's just da-da-da. Well, I'm going to give you a couple quick ways to know the Bible is true. One, the Bible came into play in 397. There was a bunch of letters in the, in the New Testament that the church was spreading around to one another. But they had to get a, a final canon together. Canon is just an approved book. Right, so in order to get that, there was about 150 years that the church was discussing which books would be in this New Testament. And it started about 140 A.D., there's a guy named Marcion. Marcion had created his own New Testament that was totally different than the teachings of Jesus. But he was saying, this is the teachings of Jesus, this is the New Testament. So it started this 150-year run to the Third Council of Carthage to get an approved New Testament canon. And there's three things they used to determine which books would be in and which ones would be out. One, it had to have divine qualities, meaning it had to point to the gospel of Jesus Christ by eyewitness accounts and to affirm everything Jesus taught and the apostles taught. Uh, number two, it had to be have church reception, which means the church already had to be using that book for doctrine, theology, and preaching. And then three, it had to have authoritative author, authors. It had to be an apostle or an eyewitness of the accounts of Jesus. That was the only books that came in. And so from there, here's some reasons why I know the Bible is true. One, archaeological evidence. Most archaeologists will tell you this. There has never been an archaeological study that has ever contradicted the Bible. Ever. Indiana Jones has not found anything to contradict the Bible. Even though most archaeologists are trying to disprove the Bible. So there's a whole lot of money going to disprove the Bible, but it keeps on falling. So all they can tell you is, where's the ark? Well, we can tell you, maybe not where the ark is, but there's a lot of stuff. Jericho they said was a mythical city. It never existed. 
In the 1930s, they actually found Jericho. And when they found Jericho, literally it was destroyed exactly like the Bible describes. The wall fell down, not inward. If you take over a city, you push the walls in. But these walls fell down, and it was burned, just like it describes in Joshua. And the storehouses were still full, meaning they, they didn't surround the city and let them starve themselves out like they, they did in the Old Testament. They just took it over immediately. Number two is historical evidence. Historical evidence is the fact there's a lot of history that points to the fact the Bible is true. Stuff like the Tower of Babel. Most professors now will tell you that it looks like the human race all came from one strain of blood, which is what we know in Genesis. Most linguists will tell you that all the world's languages started as one language, which is what the Tower of Babel teaches us. So as history catches up, the Bible actually gets more and more true. Manuscript evidence is this. People say, well, the Bible is just, Muslims are big on this. What's been translated so many times, I just know if it's true, and they won't teach the Bible in school because it's not accurate. So when Choosing how true or authoritative a, a book is, they use historical evidence. Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, which we all had to read, terrible reading, from the time it was written to the time we find the manuscript, there was 400 years in between those two manuscripts, and there was only 1,800 copies. Plato, who everybody believes Plato existed, there was almost 1,300 years between his first writing and the manuscripts being found. There's only 200 copies. You skip down the New Testament, there's only 50 years between Jesus and the writings being spread across the church, and there's over 5,800 copies. You know why that's cool? That means they have 5,800 copies to compare to see if there's any contradictions whatsoever. And there's still none. Prophetically, the Bible is the most prophetic book ever written. Nostradamus ain't got nothing on the Bible. There's thousands of prophecies that have been fulfilled and even more to be fulfilled. Just about Jesus, there's 300 plus messianic prophecies saying who Jesus would be, where he would live, how he would live, how he would die, how he'd resurrect, what his ministry be like, the whole nine, like there's 300 plus. And so one statistician in Texas decided to study the probability. So he took the 300 prophecies, that's too many, so he took just eight of the 300 messianic prophecies. And determined the probability of one man fulfilling just eight of these prophecies was one to the 10 to the 17th power which is a 10 followed by 17 zeros. So one person has 10 followed by 17 zeros chance of feeling just eight, not 300, of these prophecies. And he said, that's a really big number so no one could understand it. So he says like this. If you were to take silver dollars and spread them out over the state of Texas, that many silver dollars, 10 to the 17th power, would cover the state of Texas two feet deep from border to border, border to border, across the whole state. He said, now if you took one of those silver dollars and marked it in red, put it in the middle and brought a good Texas tornado just to swirl it all up, then you take Stevie Wonder and tell him, pick one, any one you want. The chances of him grabbing that one silver dollar that's marked is one to the 10 to the 17th power. Jesus fulfilled over 300, not eight, 300. So I heard Skip Heisek said, people don't reject the Bible because it contradicts itself or contradicts science. 
People reject the Bible because it contradicts themselves. Because none of us like seeing ourselves exposed. I'd never go to Taco Bell, and I'll never go back again after this moment. I went to Taco Bell Wednesday night because the kids were here, and I just didn't want a quick taco. I decided to go inside. So I go inside to order my food. I'm waiting at the little bar area for my three tacos. So I'm waiting. I was the only person in Taco Bell, but they have these little security screens up above the menu. So I'm looking at one, and I was like, when did this bald dude come in? So I'm looking. There's nobody else in there. I'm like, that's me. Like, I'm so tall, I'd never see the backside of my head. Toy has not told me because she loves me. None of y'all told me because you're probably making fun of me. And I'm like, wow. Now, I don't say, I hate video cameras. Now, we should never use video cameras ever again. It's so evil in the world. No, I'm just going to cover up my bald spot. When the Bible exposes something about us, you don't reject the Bible. You change what it exposes. We live in a whole generation that instead of changing what they expose, they just reject the Bible and try to keep living bald. I'm telling you, you may be bald, but if you don't put some sunscreen on that thing, you're going to get skin cancer. The same way, you may not like what the Bible says about your sexuality or about your greed or about your selfishness or about your unreligion, tradition, whatever it may be. You may not like it, but if you don't let the blood of Jesus cover it up, it's going to bring cancer of sin in your life. Like, he's so clear on here. But there's things, there's things that the Bible and science do differently. Science teaches us the how of the universe. It teaches how atoms work and protons and neutrons and chemicals react to one another. It teaches the how of how stars rotate and the planet rotates and all this stuff. But the Bible teaches us the why. And I believe in a day and age where there's a whole lot of how, people are hungry for the why. They're hungry for the why. See, science can teach you a lot, but science, science is neglected when it comes to things of the why. Isaac Newton said this, gravity explains the motions of the planets, but it cannot explain who set the planets in motion. See, it can explain all the movement, but it doesn't explain the, the why. And so there's four philosophical questions from Ravi Zacharias, one of my favorite apologists. We preached on this a couple years ago. Science cannot answer any of these. You have to go to faith for any four of these to be answered. Origin, where do I come from? Evolution doesn't give you a where do I come from. Everybody's looking for a father ultimately in their life. And faith points us to a heavenly father instead of just changes and random changes in mutation and evolution. Meaning, why am I here? Science will never give you purpose in life. Science will never give you meaning in life. The Bible teaches you why you're here and what your purpose is. Morality, what is right and wrong? Science can't answer right and wrong questions. Actually, it'll actually justify wrong things if you use the data in the wrong ways. But the Bible teaches there's a right, there's a wrong, there's a good, there's an evil, there's a proper way. And then destiny, there has to be more to life than this. I mean, I don't think it's ironic that every single culture that's ever existed has had some, some explanation that there has to be more to life than this. Actually, when you study near-death experiences, they're all the same all over the world, and they all have to do with a bright light and a fatherly figure at the end of that bright light. See, science is understanding God's creation, but faith is trusting the God of creation. See, science is based on empirical evidence and trial and error. 
I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to trust my life to trial and error. I don't know about you, but science is constantly evolving. What's true today wasn't true years ago. We talked about uh, one of the, the scientists. He said the Big Bang Theory was God creating everything, and it started, and they said he was wrong because that wasn't scientific. Science evolves and changes over time, but there's something that doesn't, faith. See, if you put your faith in science, your life is going to go with the research and the data, and it's going to go up and down and up and down with every trial and every error. You're going to keep going back and forth, but faith is not trial and error. Faith is consistent and strong and faithful. See, faith is deeper than science. So you believe with your spirit, and my spirit is deeper than my mind. My mind can process, but my spirit can receive. My spirit can see things spiritually that my mind can't comprehend. See, my spirit is a layer deeper than just my knowledge. I'm not saying get rid of knowledge. I'm saying there's a layer deeper that I can process knowledge, but I can also process meaning and purpose and love and beauty. Because this is what the writer of Hebrews said. He said, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Science can never be an assurance for things hoped for. Your hope has to come from a place that's deeper than knowledge. And it says, for the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Meaning, faith sees what science cannot see. Faith sees what science cannot comprehend. Faith sees, yes, I can take in all your scientific data and research, but my faith tells me there's more to life than this. My faith tells me this is not by accident. Faith tells me there's a longing in my heart for a heavenly father, a savior, a redeemer, a deliverer, a healer, and I believe and I know and I trust that he who created all of this created you and I. What a beautiful God. What a beautiful God. That's what motivates my soul. And I think it's time for young people to be provoked, to be scientific-minded, but spirit-filled. The word I used is I want us to be people that worship with informed minds and inflamed hearts. Let my heart be on fire for the things of God. And let my mind be informed with his word and with theology, but also with his creation so I can use both. If I connect both together, I can change the world. So my favorite authors Religious leaders, he had some crazy in his life, but it's Oral Roberts. You know about Oral Roberts? Back in the mid-1900s, he was one of the faith healers, big tent meeting revivalist, amazing healing ministry, right? And Toy makes fun of me. I'll watch old school Oral Roberts videos late at night on my iPad. But some people were like, well, that's fake. Well, what people don't know is Oral Roberts said before he could go and do a revival in a city and put it on TV, they'd have a local judge on the platform with him to validate every single healing that took place. And it wasn't a Christian judge, it was a secular judge. It was on every single platform. Anytime you saw Oral Roberts on the platform, there was a judge on the platform to validate and verify every single healing he went through. He's a faith guy. And even at his revival meetings, they had people that got prayed for. They wouldn't let people come to be prayed for at the revival meetings unless they came to the two o'clock meeting where they taught them faith line upon line precept upon precept. Those are the only people. They had to fill their minds with the word of God before they can fill their spirits with faith. But then outside of that tent, there was another tent 
for all the people that got saved, they'd take them in that tent and they would lead them to Jesus, help them get connected to local churches. Then there was another tent where they brought all those from hospital beds that were too sick to be part of the meeting after the big meeting or go over there and pray for all those other people. So I'm telling you, Oral is a faith guy. But one of the great colleges, Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But what people don't realize is that when he built Oral Roberts University, this faith guy built the first medical college at a theological, theological university. Because he said, I want to see young people's minds educated with the knowledge of God's creation and science and connect that to their faith so we can see more people healed for the glory of God. Like that is powerful. And I believe that's what God's wanting to do again. He's wanting young people and old people to use their minds for God's glory, connected to their faith to see businesses grow, see businesses expand, see doctors working in medical fields, see nurses serving patients, not just checking their vitals, but praying the spirit, praying the prayer of faith over them. Like God is wanting to use both to see something happen in our world. So if you would just stand to your feet all the room. We want to worship God with informed minds and inflamed hearts. And Pastor Anthony's going to dismiss in a second. But I want to pray for people that, that you have sickness in your body. I believe God can heal multiple ways, but I believe he heals by the prayer of faith. It says in James, call for the elders, lay hands on you, pray for the sick. But he also heals through the knowledge, experience, and education of doctors and nurses. And I believe we need to use both. So, Maybe you're going to a doctor. Maybe you need to go see a doctor. But we're going to pray for you this morning that this God will touch your body and heal your body, either through the hands of the Spirit or the hands of his people, and see that move. And so me and Toy will be down front as we dismiss. Let's pray for you. Father, we thank you just for your blessings. We thank you for your word, which is perfect and sure and enduring forever. And Father, we just thank you for your spirit that gives us life, gives us hope. Father, we thank you for your creation that points us back to your glory. And Father, I just thank you for all the people in this room. Father, I'm praying that you, that you spark callings of young people, that you're calling to be scientists and doctors and nurses and chemists and engineers. Father, you're calling them to enter into the places, Father, professors to enter into college campuses, not just with minds that have been educated, but spirits that have been pruned and purified and encouraged and strengthened to see you move in young people's lives on college campuses. So Father, we thank you, we bless you in Jesus' name.